0: The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit Ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Lutie.
1: Well, the fact that uh, love is in the title... I shouldn't be lost on any of you that are real Valentine's Day fanatics. Uh, However, this isn't the sort of just pink-red, cuddly type of love that many of us associate with Valentine's Day. This is God's love. Now, I'm not saying God's love, if we were to give it a color, isn't red and pink. It could very well be. I don't know if the kingdom of heaven works that way. But this is uh, the sort of love that bleeds, so I guess in that sense it would be red. Uh, the sort of love that rejoices in suffering, the sort of love that is willing to sacrifice everything to see one singular soul come to know what you know in Jesus Christ. It's bewildering. Many of us have been exhibiting this form of love in a small portion. We're Christians. We've been changed. We've been Infilled with the grace of God known as the Holy Spirit living within us, the very person of God. And as a result, we can't help but begin to show something different to this world around us. But there is a love that is beyond, that is an increase of the work of the kingdom of heaven in us as the saints of God that I would say I want us to hunger for. I want us to ache for it. I want us to desire it at a greater measure. And when I read Christian biography, I see it when you study Christian history, you see something. You see those men and women who gladly laid down their lives. And you see their attitude. You see the radiance of their countenance. You see their willingness to give up their lives that others may may know the truth of Jesus Christ. I want us to hunger for this. This What we're calling today, bewildering love. I've been pondering a lot lately as I walk around my neighborhood every morning and I'm praying. I'm praying for my neighborhood. And I remember I passed a guy uh, yesterday, and you know, I've seen the guy a couple times, and so you know I've been praying for him, I know his name. And, but there's these, these moments where you know you should do something more. And I've recognized that God is pressing me to be willing to do bewildering things, to do things that are not within my normal calendar and in my time constraints, and to be willing to be a Christian. And it sometimes can be harder to think of being a Christian when you're not in a concentration camp. For some reason, many of us have this picture, it's like, yeah, yeah, now, now if I'm ever thrown in a concentration camp, then I'll do this. And it's like some really heroic thing. However, these are the moments that train us for those moments. And if you're not demonstrating the life and the love of Jesus, if you're not rejoicing in those privileged opportunities to showcase the love of Jesus in the small moments... What makes us so certain that we're going to start demonstrating it in the bigger, more difficult moments? So, the subtitle I have for this is A Study in the Attitude of the Persecuted Church. I am so utterly intrigued by the persecuted church. Now, it's not that I'm going out and just asking God to bring intense persecution to our country. I'm not. I mean, that's not one of the prayers that I'm praying. However, I do want the church to be awakened. And if it, the only way that we can be awakened is in and through persecution, I'm open. In other words, I'm saying yes. Uh, However, I don't know that that is always the only way that a church can be awakened, and I would prefer a lighter touch of the grace of God upon us, Uh, but at the same time, I want the real deal in this country, no matter what it takes. I want what those Christians of old, and even those Christians around this world today, have that is so radiant in the face of suffering, that sings songs in prison cells. As Richard Wormbrandt. said, once said, uh, the guards, they were so kind to us. These are the same ones that were beating them and torturing them. They were so kind to us. They gave us instruments to praise Jesus. The instruments were their chains, and they gave the guards credit. And with those chains, they sang their songs. Are you willing to see the difficulties and the chains in your life as gifts? In other words, that which would typically curdle the world, turn them bitter and resentful, instead turn you into songs. That's what we're talking about. It's a love that converts difficulty into beauty. No matter what strikes us, it actually transforms it into a picture of heaven. No matter if it's a blow across the cheek, if it's someone stealing from us, someone doing something very evil to us, it makes no difference what it is. It converts in and through the Christian life into a picture of grace, no matter what it is. Love your enemies, says Jesus. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That's a strange thing to request of us, to actually love our enemies. It's one thing to love each other. Some of us struggle just loving our own family members, let alone our enemies, those that are dead set against us. You see, most of us, when we think of an enemy, we just think of a bully at school. Instead of recognizing that things like ISIS, for instance, and those that are conspiring even today with evil venom to destroy you and to lop off your head, that we would say, God, we love them. Do we love our enemies? There are those and there's different political factions in our country today that are seeking our harm and the destruction of Christian truth in this generation. And they hate you simply because you identify with the cross. We love them. This isn't normal. To love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. What would it look like if the church started doing good to these people? I I don't know, what exactly does it look like? And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. This is a pattern that is not just somehow in the history of the church. It is in the bedrock. It is in the word of truth that is the sponsor and that which is the catalyst for how the church functions. This is Jesus' words himself when he walked this earth. So let's look at some of the models the model of Richard Wormbrand. I love Richard Wormbrand. One of my dreams before I uh, before he passed on was that I could meet him. I didn't get to, and it was always sort of an ache. I, I wanted to meet Leonard Ravenhill, and I wanted to re- re- meet Richard Wormbrand, and I didn't. However, that was part of how God was training me. That my faith and my hope is not in men. Just because I highly regard these men, God's teaching me to lean on Him and I'm satisfied, and I have everything I need in him. But the model of Richard Wormbrand, prisoner number one in Romania, probably the greatest threat to the Romanian communist takeover of that country was a man named Richard Wormbrand, a man that loved. I mean, this man's great secret was that he loved. Nikolai Ceausescu, you have to go back in time. Uh, this was, you know, I was just old enough to understand Nikolai Ceausescu, but he was an evil evil dictator over the country of Romania, took all the wealth for himself, extreme poverty in that country, which led to a great revolt in that country. But Richard Wormbrandt, when he found out, I mean, most of this man's suffering, Richard Wurmbrandt's sufferings were because of this man, but when Richard Wurmbrandt found out when he was in prison that Nicolae Ceausescu was, was captured by the people and they were going to do the worst to him, he pled, he pled that they would show him mercy. That he would show, that they would show Nikolai Czechescu mercy? He doesn't deserve any mercy. And Richard Wormbrandt pled with tears that they would not bring the harsh judgment upon this man. He said, his plea was that he's just a little boy that was injured and hurt and abused. And yes, what he did was wrong. But could you please treat him as if he were your son? I mean, what a what a mentality. How in the world do we even digest that and absorb that? This is. This is a hateful, evil dictator. I'm here in this prison to share the love of Jesus. Richard Ruhrman, aren't you upset that you were betrayed by a fellow Christian and turned over into the hands of the communist government? I mean, don't you have bitterness? Don't you have resentment? I mean, this is not where you would want to be. You have a wife and a child out there. I know why I'm here. I'm a minister of the gospel. And if i'm here in this prison it's for the sake of those that don't know him and i'm going to share the love of jesus in this prison cell talk about converting a bad situation into something altogether different this prison guard torturing me mocking me and kicking me is the great aim of god in and through my life i don't know if you ever saw the cartoon from Torchlighters, but uh, the man is I don't know if he just kicked Richard Wormbrandt in the stomach, but Richard Wormbrandt is feeble and weak. And his response, what do you have to say for yourself? I love you. Jesus loves you. What kind of response is that? You're supposed to spew invectives back. You're supposed to curse him back as he curses you. Not the Christian. The Christian gives something that stops the cold-hearted cynic in his steps. He can't fathom cannot comprehend because it's otherworldly we as christians have a weapon and it's not what you would expect it to be we don't use weapons of warfare that the earth uses. we don't use knives and swords and guns we use weaponry of a spiritual nature love rejoicing obedience bending our knee and washing feet that are very 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 dirty Love is always the best of ways. That is the one thing Richard Wembrandt, when he uh, chronicled what he held on to, because they tried to beat Scripture out him where he could hardly even keep his brain straight, but he held on to four truths. And the final truth, and the one that was most paramount, was love is always the best of ways. And he would remind himself of this daily, that God's method for changing the world still always comes back to this bewildering love. I may not be able to remember clearly all those scriptures I, I had in my mind, and I had them organized, and my brain feels like it's turning to jello, but one thing I do know as they beat me is that the great secret to seeing everything change is love. It's not me just having a stiff upper lip. It's me loving the way Jesus loves. The model of Betsy Ten Boom, These are two of my favorite models uh, of suffering. Now, there's a lot of Great models, to be honest. I mean, I could we could go through just a, a list of models. That would have been a really interesting message. But the model of Betsy Tenboom, ironically, it's just sort of a feminine expression of the same thing. Betsy Tenboom was just so big-hearted, it was shocking. And when you read the story of the hiding place, and I'm trying to remember uh, I think it was a tramp for the Lord, which gives a whole nother angle on Betsy Tenboom from her sister Corey. And Corey, one thing I appreciate about Corey Tenboom is in all the stories, she's the bad person. You know, she's the one with the bad attitude, uh, and she's the one upset, and Betsy's always the good, good character. I appreciate that. I'm, I'm guessing that Betsy made some mistake in her life, uh, but I appreciate how Corey goes out of her way to show the virtue of Jesus in and through her sister. It's all she can remember of her sister is virtue. That's all. And and so it's, it's an amazing thing just to see a sister-sister relationship between these two, but Betsy died in a concentration camp and Corey lived on. And so the model of Betsy Tenboom, I'm here in Ravensbrück concentration camp to share the love and hope of Jesus Christ. As Corey was agonizing, the greatest fear that any uh, Dutch person had was to be brought across the border into Germany and to a concentration camp. The ruthlessness of these concentration camps uh, was so off the charts and they, had, they just felt so vulnerable. And yet Betsy still maintained a smile and still maintained a hope. Corey, but just think how many people surround us that need what we have. But just think about how many suffering people that are just about to die and we can reach them with the gospel before they do. What kind of mentality is that? Get us out of here. I don't want to do this. Instead, she was the consummate missionary. She was there on an errand from the Most High God. This Nazi soldier currently beating me is the great aim of God, and then through my life, I choose to love them. As Corey saw her sister being beaten because she was so feeble and so weak and couldn't even stand anymore, the only thing that was going through Betsy's mind was, Lord Jesus, this poor soul does not know you. Please introduce this God to you and to your love. Who thinks that when they're getting kicked in the gut with one of those Nazi boots? Who thinks that? We're supposed to think that. Though this is a model of two characters that many of us highly esteem, I want us to esteem that love. And I want us to recognize that we have access to that love in and through Jesus Christ. What's your position? In if you're in Christ, you have access to that love. Don't take a lesser version. When you could take that version to turn your life outward, to see the needs of others above your own, there is a smile that cannot be wiped away. I don't know if you've ever, if you guys remember the story of, of Betsy's parting, but Betsy dies a rather miserable death of sickness in a concentration camp. I mean, that's not a, a lot of fanfare as you're going, she's just lying on a table in the, uh, the medical office in Ravensbrook Concentration Camp. Corey sneaks out. She's so concerned about her sister. She sneaks over, is trying to look out, walks into a room, and there's her sister's dead body. And it was so jolting to her to see this girl that, I mean, she had been suffering for so many days straight, and it had been such agony for Corey. But then when she looked at her sister's face, it so impacted her to realize that this girl that had chosen love, that even in death and even in the midst of Ravensbrook, her face looked like the face of an angel, Corey says. It went from being the gaunt, pale, pasty face of one withering away to the face of an angel, and upon her face was a smile. This one who had loved and lived so well exited this earth with such a proof of the supernatural realm upon her face. Even in death, they can't wipe the smile off. It's a bewildering love. So in the midst of this, rejoice always. You know, Paul in this context is actually saying, and there's more to it, you know, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all things. Listen to this. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So many of us are like, I just want to know your will, Lord. I want to understand what your will is for my life. Well, there's, there's part of it. Rejoice always. I don't know about you, but my moments that I naturally default to rejoice in usually are good circumstances where things have turned my way and I finally there's a breakthrough. Now! Uh, yet now is when we rejoice. Instead, the word is always, which by definition, if you want to look that word up, means always. In every circumstance. Every circumstance. What about the boot in the stomach? What about wasting away in a concentration camp packed into a barracks 28 with 200 starving, dying bodies? The smell of it is so overwhelming. Flees all over the place. I cannot rejoice in that. Rejoice always. You see, we as Christians are built for the most difficult circumstances you stick us into that circumstance and you will find that something comes out of us that will not come out of anyone else that doesn't know Jesus. We prove the supernatural realm in difficulty, not by somehow escaping difficulty, but in and through it, we demonstrate the heavenlies. For we have grace for such trials and those trials, when they touch our life, convert into song. Convert into instruments. Convert into dancing. I know. Sometimes we're just dancing inside. Our our feet are chained to the floor. We couldn't get up and do the jig. However, there is something taking place within us. I mean, what kind of thought pattern is it to say, and when you are falsely accused, leap for joy? I don't know if any of you have ever been falsely accused, but leaping is the last thing on your mind. And yet... When you begin to think according to God's word, it becomes the first thing on your mind. False accusation, leaping. False accusation, leap. Leap, Eric. Leap now. You see, the spiritual life of a believer goes in the exact opposite direction. You know what happens to most people when they're falsely accused? Their knees buckle, and they collapse into the fetal position. It's a deep, deep wound that takes your strength away. And what does a Christian do? does the exact opposite, turns to God for strength and goes heavenward in obedience, not because their knees are saying, jump, I feel like jumping, but because God has commanded it. And when we agree with God, it's amazing, but then there is a rush of grace into our being. Rejoice always. Some of you are going through difficulty right now, but you're not in agreement with scripture in regards to that difficulty. You're not functioning as a Christian, you're functioning as an everyday person on this earth but I want you to be a Christian in how you function in your difficulties. I want you to choose to love. I want you to choose to rejoice. I want you to choose to to give thanks in all circumstances. The Audacious March Down Brickbat Lane. This is a little section. I want to say it's the preface of my book. The book hasn't come out yet. It sort of had an early release, but it's called The Bold Return of the Dunces, and so this is right in the very beginning, and it fit well in here, and since I might as well introduce you guys to the book somehow. The east end of London in the mid to late 1800s was a place of darkness. Jack the Ripper roamed the streets of Whitechapel while poverty strode alongside him as if it were his lackey. Death, despair, drunkenness, and disease were more common than a cold, and it seemed hope was yesteryear's fancy. But as is true in every season of darkness, God raises up a band of heavenly fools, to shine the ancient light of truth. And so he did in East London. God commissioned the Hallelujah Singing Salvation Army to start marching in the midst of this destitution. This audacious band of soul winners was not received with the august acclamation, you would think, that those despairing and desperate in desperate need of hope would supply to their rescuers. Instead of acclaim, applause, and gratitude, they were met with grave hostility. Almost always a mob numbering in the thousands stood to block the way of the Salvation Army. And such was the case one day as the army marched towards Sheffield, England. The shouts of, "Kill 'em!" rang in the streets. A savage mob hooted, spat, screamed, cursed, hurled filth, refuse, and brickbats, and charged headlong at the humble band of Christian men and women with malevolent intent. The motley band of marching saints was led by William Booth, who sat upon a carriage with an open top, fully exposed to the hurling debris. His wife Catherine was seated beside him. It wasn't the first time he had received this kind of reception, It wasn't the first time he had arrived at his destination bloodied and bruised, and it certainly would not be the last. Throughout history, the bold return of the dunces has never been received with applause or acceptance. But amazingly, even amid the flying filth and the venomous insults, Booth and his followers seem to have faces of angels. Looking closely, one might even detect the presence of genuine smiles playing on their lips. Booth charged his followers onward through the opposition. He commissioned them to not retaliate, but simply march on, beating their drums, playing their horns and embracing the mockery. So they marched, singing at the top of their lungs, declaring to anyone who would listen that the Son of God had conquered sin and death on their behalf. They finally arrived at their destination in the same way that all Christian Christ' fools arrive, bruised but blessed, clothes torn, but hearts overflowing with love, insulted but shouting, "Hallelujah, bloodied but invigorated, and ready to go right back out and do it all again. This scene clearly enunciates our vision for Ellerslie. We want to build up men and women ready to march down Brickbat Lane, straight through the venomous mob, shouting hallelujah at every malevolent attempt against their lives and dignity, unashamedly declaring the victory of Jesus Christ to all who will listen. This is the bold return of the dunces. To be a fool is not something I would advise to anyone, but to become a fool for Christ is truly a noble pursuit. It is for this purpose that Ellerslie was founded. We are a school that exists to raise up fools for Christ. The Salvation Army the beginnings, I'm extremely intrigued by the Salvation Army, not where it's at today. The Salvation Army has lost a lot of its original purpose and focus, which was salvation unto Jesus Christ. And the power with which they functioned is utterly amazing. They did certain things that still to this day I wince at, and I'm thinking, oh, wow, I can't imagine doing that. But I tell you what, the purity of heart and motive was just amazing to just look upon, the Salvation Army, the beginnings. One memorable, memorable day in July 1865, after exploring the streets in an East End district where he was to conduct a mission, the terrible poverty, vice, and degradation of these needy people struck home to his heart. He arrived at his Hammersmith home just before midnight and greeted his waiting Catherine with these words, darling, I have found my destiny. She understood him. Together they administered God's grace to God's poor in many places. Now they were to spend their lives bringing deliverance to Satan's captives in the evil jungle of London's slums. I don't think many of us understand how bad East End End London was. It was the most despicable and disgusting place possibly on earth at the time. And ironically, West End London was a mile away and it was possibly the most affluent and most wealthy place on earth at the time. That contradiction juxtaposed just a mile apart is hard for most people to even comprehend. That The worst place on earth possibly was right here in the east end and the west end possibly boasted the best living standards on earth. Quite amazing. Audacious fatherhood. This is one of the most extraordinary thoughts that has ever entered my mind and I still wrestle with it, but at the same time I wouldn't stick it in a sermon if I wasn't extremely intrigued. One day, William took Bramwell, his son, I think he was around 11 years old. I have an 11-year-old son, so this is <clears throat> hits very close to home. One day, William took Bramwell, his son, into an East End pub, which was crammed full of dirty, intoxicated creatures. Seeing the appalled look on his son's face, he said gently, Bramwell, these are our people, the people I want you to live for. You see, when you give a quote from William Booth, you have to give a deep voice for it. <laughs> if you've ever heard him preach, there's like this old, old, scratchy uh, version of William Booth on sermonindex.net. If you ever go there, it's like, <laughs> so that's why you hear my, my voice drop uh, down uh, when I do a quote for him. Hey, Hudson, come join Daddy. Where's, where's Daddy going to go? Uh, Daddy's knees are sort of knocking at a message like this. You see, it's one thing to show love to some guy in my neighborhood. It's a whole other thing to show love to my enemies, to the ones that have literally declared they want Eric Ludy dead. Well, I mean, come, Hudson, let's go say hi to them. To the cluster of ISIS soldiers over here. Could you imagine how many people go out of their way to show love? Come on, Hudson, I want to introduce you to some guys. The cluster of ISIS soldiers? You've got to be kidding. The gathering of radical LGBT activists? They don't really like me. Uh, Come on, Hudson, I want to introduce you to these people because these people need the love of Jesus. The inner city gang, most of us are wise enough to keep our distance. We know when things are dangerous. The circle of brash, godless, blaspheming youth right there represents what most of us try and keep our children away from. We don't want our children to have anything to do with that. And yet, what are we building our children for? That's a good question. To be isolated, to somehow survive in this life and be untouched by the world, or to take the truth of Jesus Christ and bring it to Those that are dying, like I said, when I, when I study the Salvation Army, it presses on certain points where you're thinking, 11? They're not ready for that. You know, that Bromwell Booth was the one that took over the Salvation Army, he was actually preaching in his father's pulpit at 11. Whoa, could you? Hudson's listening to this right now, uh, and he's probably like, Whoa. <laughs> One day, Eric took Hudson, his son, into the center of a circle of smoking, tattooed, blaspheming, intoxicated, stoned youth gathered outside the Windsor McDonald's. Seeing the appalled look on his son's face, he said gently, Hudson, these are our people, the people I want you to live for. That, doesn't that sound a little unwise? I mean, come on, Eric, if you're a good parent, you're not going to do that. This message is called bewildering love. What I'm struggling with is what I'm wanting you to struggle with, too. I don't want us to live comfortable lives. I want us to live Christian lives. I want us to be aggressive with the truth we have as if we actually believe that it is the only way of salvation. If we believe that, then how does it change our thinking? How does it change our living? The early love bearers, those that would radically go into the center of the most difficult situations and preach the gospel... They gave up everything to follow. They built their entire life around prayer, the study of the word, and the sharing of the good news. They expected to be hated, despised, persecuted, and even killed. And when they were told to stop preaching about Jesus, they kept preaching. They tirelessly labored to reach every nation. They were not just hearers, but doers. They changed the world in which they lived, and they did, in the end, die as martyrs. We need to understand that very last line is where we start. My life is already given over. I'm not looking to self-protect in this life. I'm looking to have the Spirit of God use this life in the window of time that I have, knowing that the enemy cannot snuff out my life before it's time. Paul was stoned. When you are stoned, your head is crushed. You are knocked to the ground and big boulders, not little pebbles, are chosen. And they crush your head. Your skull is smashed. And when it is obvious that you have no more life in you, they take you outside the city. Paul was taken outside the city and laid in a heap The saints surround him, and the guy pops back to life. What does he do? He goes right back into the city. He should, in most of our minds are thinking, you shouldn't have gone into that city in the first place. What were you thinking? And then we finally get him outside the city. He pops back to life. We're like, oh, oh, Paul. okay. Let's take a little break. Let's go home and get some rest. Your head looks rather funny right now. And he's like, hey, guys, there's some unfinished business. He goes back in? Could you imagine the contorted-headed guy comes right back in? They're like, whoa. <laughs> Bewildering is the operative word. Bewildering. It doesn't make sense to us. Joshobium, the Tacmonite, one of David's mighty men, you know what his name means? Son of wisdom. The guy went against 800 Soldiers, single-handedly. Does that sound like any wisdom you know any mom on earth is going to give to their son? As long as it's not 1,200, I'm fine, dear. 800 is well within the bounds of wisdom. Single-handedly. No one in their right mind would do this, and this guy in history is known as the son of wisdom. What sort of wisdom are we talking about? Heavenly wisdom. Audacity of that sort, is born in another realm. When we yield to the Holy Spirit, he says, will you let me do it in and through you? What has happened to us? So the church doesn't function that way. I think we just need to get it out on the table and say we probably don't function that way. I know we have some bold characters in here, so I'm not just gonna do a blanket over this entire group, but we have a tendency, a propensity to excuse ourselves from doing the bewildering things. We are waiting for the lost and dying to come to us. This is our model. If they come to us, I'm ready to share with them. Yeah, if they come to me and say, what do you have inside of you? I need it. Oh, what a great opportunity. We are hoping that the enemies of the gospel will just give up. What's our great strategy as the church? What is it that we're like coming together and saying, all right, are we just trying to survive through our lifetime, somehow teach our kids to survive, to insulate themselves, to somehow make it? Or are we here on this earth to change it? I can tell you what I'm here for, I know it. I'm not here to twiddle thumbs. I'm here to do something. I have one life to live, so do you. Let's take advantage of that life. Angels would love to get into our skin. Oh God, could you put me in that person's body instead of them? They don't know what they have angels can't do the work that we've been given. We've been entrusted. They see it, but it's been given to us, the church. And we have one span of time on this, this earth to utilize it. And most of us are wasting it. We're wasting it with worldly ambition. We don't call it that. We call it Christian ambition. Or we, don't, we take the word ambition off, which is a Christian family development where we're building deep pockets and we're getting comfortable and we're getting cozy and we're insulating ourselves so that we can survive one life. The closet, the proper use and the misuse. So in Christianity, it's ironic, but there is a closet. And we always say, go into your closet and pray. However, most of us are misusing our closets. give you two options. It's either the place of prayer which infuses the preacher to go into all the world and preach or it's the place of hiding from danger, threat, difficulty, obstacle, and challenge. You know, there's these, we'll call them conspiracy sorts, that are always sort of spiking fear in the body of Christ. Not just the body of Christ, but they're always saying things that strike a certain fear. They melt your heart. I don't know if you've ever been around that, where someone says something like, yes, the end is coming, and all the Christians will be beheaded. And we're like, oh, and you feel weak in your knees, you start to hear this stuff. Listen, ISIS is actually now moving into the United States. Are these things true? Eh, sure. However, we as Christians do not fear what the enemy is conspiring to do. They should be fearing what the church is conspiring to do. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. I mean, how ridiculous is this? The end times is not the end of us. The devil is the one that is scared of the end times. It is his end. Let's make sure we don't share in his grief. He's the one concerned. We should get excited. Yeah. end. Yeah! Because it's the beginning for us. I'm excited for that new body, by the way. Adopting the East End. So this goes back in time. In many ways, this is a reminder message for me and for us. In fact, that building on the other side of town, we call it the East End. The reason for that is is because it's an extension of our ministry here to say, "Let's let's start dealing with the east end of Windsor. Let's not just deal with those that are the easy, let's deal with those that are the unlovely in this town. And so there is always a west end and an east end. You know that in every situation in all of your life, every family has a west end and an east end. They have the ones that are weaker and the ones that are stronger. And yet where does the gospel go? It always goes to the weak aspects. In every church, there's a West End and there's an East End. Well, where do we spend our energies? We go to the East End of a church and we build it up. And so in every community, in every country, the West End of London, affluent, wealthy, the East End of London, impoverished and dying. What did William Booth say? These are our people. Bramwell, these are our people, the people I want you to live for. The principle of living water. Jesus says, he that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly, which means the innermost part of his being, shall flow rivers of living water. Of course, Jesus himself fulfills this, being the picture of the body of Christ. And when he gives up his life and when he suffers for others, what happens? Out flows a river. What do I mean by that? Well, his side was pierced and out flowed a river That would be called living water, why? Because in the Jewish culture, blood translated to life. And what came out, blood and water. So you had life water that flowed out. Out of his side flowed the gift of life to us. Well, what comes out of our life? The gift of life to others. And when does it come out? When we're pierced, when we suffer, when we go through difficulty. When our heart is touched, what comes out? Life to others. When we suffer, when we're persecuted, that's actually the avenue through which God will bless the world around us. It's an amazing secret tactic. Because the enemy's like, I'm going to get them. And God's like, got them right where I want them. Because then when the enemy touches us, what gets all over them? Life. And they're like, oh, covered with it. And they melt down. You see, we have life to give. However, it comes out of us in the most odd way in and through difficulty, trials, tribulations, and sufferings. But that's why we don't fear them. Through these things, this difficulty is converted into a blessing to others. Living water flows to the lowest place. It's just the principle of water. You ever noticed? It always flows down. Uh It does. You can test it. It always flows down, and it goes to the lowest place. Well, this is what's inside of us. That Holy Spirit that is inside of us, which is the living water, where does it go? It goes to the lowest place. It goes to the lowest place in our life and starts working. It goes to the lowest place in the lives of those around us and starts working. And it goes to the lowest place in the world around us and starts working. It flows to the east end, for this is where Christ is. Christ goes to the weak. Christ goes to the east end. Humility, like water, it's always drawn to the lowest place. So, one of the two, th- I'm bringing up two key concepts of how Christianity works humility and love. This love that is inside of us comes out, but oftentimes it's coming out like that living water when we are touched, when we are afflicted, when we go through difficulty. And then that bewildering love has a stage in which to showcase the nature of Jesus Christ and to communicate that gospel. But this is also humility where we're willing to look weak, we're willing to bend our knee, we're willing to wash feet, we're willing to be associated with the refuse of this world. We're willing to be misunderstood. We're willing. We are moved by love and humility, and that humility leads us with that love to low places. Taking the East End with the force of love and humility, let's gain this territory. I really like this term with the force of love and humility this great battle axe of the church love and humility who would ever dream that that would be our weapon love and humility so here's another option and this is the way most of us have functioned with the force of self-interest and self-preservation that's how we functioned you see we you know a lot of people would even say this a lot of schools are going to teach you in this exact thing you need to look out for you you see, that self interest and self preservation are the two greatest motivations that we can have. You know, our government is set up on that. You know, give a man his own home and he'll take pride in it and he'll take care of it. Well, I'm not gonna argue that is definitely true. However, there's a greater motivation. There's something even greater that could change our country than just self interest and self preservation, and that is love and humility. The glory of God is at stake. That's what moves us. This dying world will die. Without hope, if we are led by the force of self interest and self preservation. Most of the Christian books that are selling today are written to establish the force of self interest and self preservation in your life, to keep you on the throne, to keep you in control, to bring out the best you. And I'm here to tell you that's going to destroy the church of Jesus Christ if we allow it to continue one more minute. It is the denial of self and the exaltation of Jesus Christ that has always built the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't leave us hapless and ill-equipped. So here we are, we're commissioned. We're commissioned to do this impossible thing, to go into all the world and preach the gospel, to make disciples of all men. I mean, these are big jobs, to actually take on the powers that be in this world that hate us and we're supposed to love them. Have you ever dug in your own pockets trying to find love? He says, boy, I really don't care about them. God, I I know I'm supposed to, but I really want them dead. Uh Uh-oh, we got a problem here. You see, Eric in and of himself, you in and of yourself, we do not have that which we need to be Christians. That which makes Christianity great is not found in our own pockets. You can check right now. You're not going to find it. It's not in you. It's in him. And as a result, the Christian must recognize that when we believe, we are granted access into Jesus Christ to gain from his treasury everything that is needed for functioning here. So do you have it? No. But do you have it? Yeah. Yeah, you do have it. Not in your own pockets, but you have it in Christ. And as a result... True mechanics of Christianity, working Christianity is learning to not dig in your own pocket, but to go into his pocket. And when you learn how to live out of his pocket, how to live out of his resource, you begin to realize, hey, you don't need to try and drum up Betsy Ten Boom Love. You don't need to try and drum up Richard Wormbrandt kindness. You have Jesus. His divine power is given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. All things. So what we have is an issue of life and godliness, how we're going to behave as God on this earth, how we're going to live out this Christian life. But his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Introducing the Christian Christian. So if we're going to define what sort of Christian we're talking about, we're talking about the Christian version of the Christian. Not the Christian out there that's all self-interested and self-protecting and looking out for themselves and you know, diminishing the word of God, diminishing the deity of Jesus Christ, diminishing the cross work of Jesus. No, no, no. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Christian Christian, the one that bends his knee, his or her knee, before the throne of grace and says it's because of you, because of Jesus Christ, because of his work that I even have hope. There's only one means of salvation. I'm giving everything, leaning everything upon it. Four principles of the Christian Christian. Now there's a lot more principles. I'm just giving you four, okay? Just to get us started and to kick off uh, this whole idea of bewildering love. Number one, the principle of especially them. So we can talk about our mission as Christians. And you know, we're supposed to love God, we're supposed to love our spouse, we're supposed to love our children. Uh, We're supposed to love our parents, we're supposed to love our brothers and sisters, we're supposed to love the body, and the the world will know that we are Christians by our love for one another. Okay, so this is the trademark, the external emblem upon our lives is this love. However, as we live out our life on this earth, it is not just our love for one another, but it is our love in, in a big sense that is a showcase, is a symbol to the world around us. And one of my favorite things that uh, William Booth would say is he would talk about what we could call the especially them. I'll just read this. The brand of love that God has shed abroad in our hearts has been made available to us especially for such as these. For instance, when you dig down into your pockets of love right now, your own uh, storehouse of it, how do you feel towards the ISIS soldiers? Just in and of yourself. I'm not talking about how you should feel, because I know there's a right answer to this, especially after a message like this. Oh, I just have a warm feeling. I'm just saying, in and of yourself, we're bankrupt. We get mad. We want them dead. And if we heard that their bomb had exploded in their uh, headquarters and destroyed all of them, we would rejoice. The question for us as Christians, are we willing to bear the heart of God for these men that are perpetrating evil. And yes, their evil deeds are deserving of eternal damnation, but so are yours. In other words, yes, the grievous nature of them is horrific, and yes, the removal of those deeds would be tremendous, and the righteous would rejoice for the removal of that behavior. But there's souls that hang in the balance. And for us to begin to recognize God's love for such as these is a very difficult and perplexing thing. The brand of love that God has shed abroad in our hearts has been made available to us especially for such as these. These men and women are empty, hurting, lost, and dying. Christ's blood was shed for them. Would we be willing to shed our blood for them as well? If you knew that by laying down your life today and giving it to Jesus Christ, that 10 ISIS soldiers could be saved? Wouldn't that be a fascinating thought? It's like, well, they're not deserving. It's when you begin to recognize the condescending love of Jesus Christ towards you that you begin to realize, I don't want to hold too tight to my life. I don't want to shrink back from giving everything to Jesus Christ to allow him to love through me. It's bewildering, yes. Number two, the principle of the most infamous sinner the way William Booth would train his disciples is to go into a new community whenever they were starting in a new community and to ask God to show them the most infamous sinner. In other words, the one, the one most notorious for their sin. And usually every community would know that person. Oh yeah, it's uh, <clears throat> Bubba over here. You know, there's always someone that is the most notorious. And so what he would tell his men and women is, all right, start there. Start there with the most notorious sinner. Go after him boldly and courageously to win him for Christ. Why would you do that? Because when the most notorious turns, it changes the whole community because everyone in that community knows that there has to be a God in heaven. Isn't that an interesting strategy to go into a community and change the worst of them instead of go for the easy pickings? It's like, here's some low-lying fruit. Instead, let's climb up into the tree, risk breaking our neck to grab that one at the very top. That's impossible. When you come into a town, find the most infamous sinner in that community and go after him. His transformation will preach the gospel to the people of that town with greater force and clarity than a thousand sermons. Number three, the principle of boldness in the face of threat. There are certain things that cause us to go weak in the knees. There's a reason also why... The disciples, the early disciples, needed a movement of grace and the shaking of a building by the Holy Spirit to endue them with boldness to preach. We don't naturally come with this package. Some of us are bold just in life. You know, we have a bold personality. But there's a difference between having a bold personality and being bold to share the gospel. Even the most bold personalities will cower when it comes to sharing about Jesus Christ. It's a really strange thing. There was uh, one of our pastors in here was telling a story about uh, some soldiers that were uh, over in the Middle East in the midst of gunfire, and they were in their uh, little bunker, and the enemy was approaching, and I mean, it's pretty intense when you have to get up, stand up, expose yourself, and shoot. And so he stood up, and his gun was locked on him, and it wasn't working, and he, he went back down. I mean, talk about boldness. Even to get up in the first place, and he goes back to the ground. Now, could you imagine to get up again? Because last time your gun didn't work. But he knew that he had to stand. So he jumps back up, and his gun is jammed. Twice, and he goes back down. Third time, gets back up, and his gun worked. And so if we're going to talk about courage and boldness, that's, that's about the epitome of it in our mind. And yet that same soldier said, There's a big difference between that sort of boldness and actually sharing the gospel. Sharing the gospel with the guy next to you in the foxhole. There's something about the gospel that causes our knees to weaken. There's a shame that oftentimes is just associated with it in our lives. We feel vulnerable. We need something supernatural. Just like we need for the love, we need something supernatural for the boldness. Because there's a dying world out there that needs this bewildering love, but we need humility and we need boldness to be able to bring that bewildering love to this world around us. So the principle of boldness in the face of threat. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, says Paul to the church at Philippi, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Listen to this line, I made it big. And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. So adversaries, Paul is saying, look, you need to live in such a way where there is not any terror of your adversaries. When you live with a bold confidence, when the enemy, have you ever heard it said that animals can smell fear? I don't know if it was dogs or mountain lions. I don't remember which, but when we're growing up, we always hear that thing. It's like, and they can smell fear. Which I, I, I don't know what it smells like, but supposedly there's something there. Now, whether or not there actually is a scent to fear, I think we understand what it means. You can see it in the eyes. Most of us can sense when someone's uncomfortable. It's a sense, how do you know? Well, you've been around a lot of people. And when you are around someone, you can sense if they take a lower place and are vulnerable or if they take a higher place than you and look down on you, okay? So as a Christian, we cannot give off the scent of fear or the the notion that we are afraid of the enemy's boast. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. And so when the world comes to diminish, to shout down our gospel, to remain strong in him is actually a proof to them Of the fact that they're on the wrong side that they're actually under a just condemnation it is for some reason a proof of their perdition to them and for us it's a symbol that we are safely secure in the hands of grace we have access to whatever that is that lack of terror before our adversaries isn't that an amazing thought i don't know if you found out that you had that back home Sort of like if I said, yeah, there's a whole bunch of Girl Scout cookies waiting for you back on your home counter. Wouldn't you be excited to get home? It's like, whoa, I can't wait to eat some of those. You got that. You have humility of the Spirit of God. You have the love, the bewildering love of God. And you have the boldness and the courage of grace. It's waiting for you. Don't let it go bad. The righteous are as bold as a lion. So if we're going to look at that biblically, the righteous one, the righteous branch, his name is Jesus Christ, and the righteous are as bold as a lion. Was he as bold as a lion? Oh, yeah. Quite a man, Jesus Christ. God in the flesh lived it the way we ought to live it. and We could all just clap and say, well done, Jesus, which we should. However, the gospel takes it further than that and says that he has made a way into his very life where he will wrap his life around us and then fill us with his Holy Spirit so that his life would be in us. The life of the righteous, the righteous clothing and the righteous life of God actually living inside of us. So, you become the righteous. Not because of any work you did, but because of his work on the cross, you become, in accordance with Proverbs 28.1, the righteous in that very sentence. The righteous... Are as bold as a lion. The Christian are as bold. The Christians are as bold as lions. I don't know if that describes us very well, does it? However, it should. And that's what I want us to crave. I want us to crave a return to that sort of living. I do not want us to let these things just pass by untaken. Remember little Mary Slesser and the Jungle Warrior. I don't know if any of you have ever studied Mary Slessor, but Mary Slessor has some stories that are, she was a little short Scottish girl with red hair. And so I have my mental picture of her, and uh, usually in my mind I make her a lot taller, because I cannot fathom her being little in these stories. She is just way too courageous and bold. So you want to give her some height, like, oh, I think she was about 7'2". I mean, she is quite something. She was picked on by some bullies when she was really young. And, they were, and she was going to share the gospel with this really dangerous school, which she wasn't supposed to go by herself. But she went to share the gospel with these bullies. And they backed her into a back alley. And they were basically they had this sharp uh, knife-like thing. It was like a razor's edge. And they were swinging. It was really heavy. Right in front of her, getting closer and closer. And unflinchingly, she stared back at them. And finally, they shuddered and stopped. Said, just let her go. Just let her go. This is how her life starts in her witness for Jesus Christ. This little girl from Scotland, she makes us all look really bad. She goes on the mission field, and every, hardly ever has there been a woman missionary by herself without a husband. So here's little Mary Slessor that risks everything and goes over to Africa, And everyone is working on the coast, and every now and then one of the men will go inland just a little and then come back for safety. Mary Slessor's like, there's a whole lost and dying world inside this country that none of you have ever gone to see. Would you let me go? No way. First of all, you're a woman. Secondly, we don't do those things. Mary Slessor ends up being the first to pioneer inland, a little short Scottish girl with red hair. And she, in the midst of this, has such extraordinary stories. She doesn't even speak the language. She's in this tribe. Someone has actually come to her aid and actually assisted her. Well, that person ends up being uh, enemy number one for the uh, witch doctor and his little tribe. And so they're going to pour hot oil on this person. And so Mary Slessor comes out and basically stands between this tribal warrior that's ready to punish Uh, this person who served a white person, and Mary Slessor stands in front. Remember, short, little girl with red hair. I know. In your mind, you're thinking seven foot two. I'm just trying to remind you, short. You don't have to be big to be bold for the gospel. This is amazing. She stands in front to preserve the life of someone else. It's not her business I mean, she's in a foreign tribe. We don't know how they work in this tribe. All she knows is right and wrong, and she knows the power of her God. She steps out to do that which is right and is unflinching, will not move, and the jungle warriors threatening to kill her, threatening to to pour hot oil over her, she will not move from her position. In this culture, they had never, ever seen anyone defy one of these jungle warriors, anywhere, They'd never, for generations, these were the rulers. They were ruled by fear. And Mary Slessor had none of it. And as a result, from that point on, everyone respected Mary. She didn't have any fear. It was only the jungle warriors that didn't have fear, but she beat the jungle warrior without violence. She beat him with love and fearlessness. And it changed the whole tribe. What a strange way to share the gospel. To literally simply show no fear? And to stand for what is true? What an odd way to change the world. And yet this is the pattern that we have in Scripture. Why should we be ashamed of that which we represent? Don't we know who we stand for? But, Eric, they'll pour hot oil on you. Remember uh, the three in the fiery furnace? God can save us from this fire, but even if he doesn't, we know whom we serve. We know whom we have given our life to, and here we stand. This is how the Christian functions. Number four, the principle of the fearless next step. For many of us, this is where I would say we are at. I wouldn't say there's probably a lot of disagreement in this room. I would say most of us in this room are like, God, I just need something because I feel so weak. I can't tell you how many times this past year I've given a message on our weakness in light of boldly sharing the gospel. It seems like a broken record named Eric Ludi and yet I'm doing it just as much for me. I find that I'll have a little surge of boldness, and I'll start doing some bold things, and then the American culture will sort of begin to wear me down. And I'll find myself going into retreat mode and justifying it. It It's amazing how we can come up with our justifications for why we're timid again. It's like, oh, I don't want to bring up that. I had one situation where I walked by someone, and I just knew I was supposed to say something. You know, oh, that feeling... I, I know many of you know that feeling. And it's just like, you're, you're talking to yourself a mile a minute, like, oh, it doesn't matter. I'll see them again. I'll, I'll do it. Oh! And so, I I stopped. Because I knew it. I, I just knew it was going to end up in a sermon if I didn't. <laughs> so I stopped. I heard, God, this is, it's, it's beyond that socially awkward stage now. Now I have to retreat, go back. Okay? Oh, boy. Uh, and, sure enough, it's exactly what God needed to do in me. I I want us to take the first next step. Sometimes we're going to find some belligerence in us. We're going to find that we can sit in a seat like this and agree with a message like this, but the application we actually don't want. We would rather esteem this truth and be a hearer of it than a doer. I'm going to tell you right now that being a hearer of a message like this is far worse than not ever hearing the message. I want us to willingly submit ourselves to Jesus Christ right now and to say, God, I'm willing to get uncomfortable. I'm willing to have you do a work inside of me that makes me bold, to show a bewildering love with humility. I don't want to showcase Christianity out of my own human strength. I don't want to give a fleshly demonstration of this stuff I want you to take this vessel and make it work as it ought to work. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble, therefore, we will not fear. Therefore, because God is a refuge and strength for us, we have no fear. What's your position? In if you're in Christ, who is by definition that refuge and that strength, You are actually in a very mobile refuge. And wherever you go, you are clothed with a shield of faith which quells all the fiery darts of the evil one. You are secure. Now you could say, is my body secure? You are secure. Your body interacts with this hostile realm and may get a little shrapnel in it. However, you are seated in heavenly places In Christ Jesus, the enemy cannot ravage you. You are that internal part. This body is the carrying device. It's called the old body. And it lingers here on this earth, and it does the job that we need it to do. And by the way, this body will be in agreement up until the day God says, your time is over. The enemy can't even snuff out our life out of this body until the time is. Remember Paul getting a uh, viper uh, latched on, getting stoned, and he still gets right back up. And like, who is this guy? And then one day it came the day where he knew it was over and his head was gonna be lopped off. It's okay. It's okay, but Paul wasn't touched. Jesus says, nothing shall by any means hurt you. What does he mean? Because Christians throughout the ages have been obliterated in their bodies. However, their souls thrived. And even when they died, the smile could not be taken from their face you serve a greater purpose than just survival down here. You're dealing with the glory of God and it's eternal. You will live forever. Your decisions here matter greatly. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. I would love to see it right here, that even if bullets were riddling the side of this building and even if some UN army was marching and someone came running in. They're coming! They're coming to get the Christians! That there would be no fear in this room. It doesn't matter. We rest in his hands. The Egyptian army was swallowed up in the Red Sea. But even if they did take us, and even if our physical bodies were killed, guess what? We are a witness unto the cross of Jesus Christ even to the end. The smile. Every single one of us, if all our heads are in a basket, you pick up each one, like whoa! Huh! Ah! Big smile. I know that was a little grotesque. <laughs> hey, you know. It... David hasted. We have a giant in the valley of Elah in the land of Israel. And Saul, who's head and shoulders above all, he's the giant in the Israeli camp, is scared to death. There isn't anyone that can take him on. It's like your firstborn life. You can't take on this giant. It's mocking you, saying, sit down. You see, there is nothing in you that's able to fight this battle. But there's a David. And when David shows up in the camp, he functions completely different than your firstborn life. He's a picture of the second, or for you, the second-born life. What does he do? He says, is there not a cause? Hey, what's this guy doing? He's mocking the armies of the living God? Whoa, what are you guys doing about it? We're like, we're too scared to do anything about it. And that's the way we're functioning in this room. What are you guys doing about it? This country is dying, and it's dying quickly. We have a window of opportunity to share the truth of Jesus Christ right now with freedom. Actually, constitutionally still protected. What are we doing about it? He's standing out there boasting, saying, You're not going to get up. I know Christianity in this age and generation. You're not going to do anything. We're going to keep our agenda going and we're going to mow you down. And so many of us are hiding in little closets instead of pulling a David. Well, did I hear this guy correctly? stepping out into the field and saying, this spiritual power that is mocking in this country is going down. You see, we don't think that way. David hasted. It means to sprint. David didn't just run. He sprinted straight towards it. Uh, David, that doesn't sound like wisdom. It's heavenly wisdom and the giant went down. Bewildering love. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. The commission is clear. We have been called to live a life that is otherworldly. We cannot live an otherworldly life in and of our own strength, our own resolve, our own determination. We can only live an otherworldly life in Christ, and so we need to make sure that we are firmly planted and positioned in Christ. And the way you are positioned and firmly grafted into Christ is by faith. I was sharing with the, the basic or no, they're not called basic students uh, with the semester students uh, this past week, and I was talking about faith. And Bruce Olson, remember from Bruchko, uh, he was describing faith to the Modulone Indians, and they all live in a common house. And he said, when he was trying to describe it, he's like, how do I describe faith to him? It's like, you know how you you sleep in that hammock at night and all of you guys sleep in hammocks? You have to tie into those rafters and you trust those rafters can hold you up. I want you to tie into Jesus Christ and I want you to get into that hammock of your faith and I want you to rest in it. I want you to put all your weight, all your body weight on the fact that you believe he is able to save you and he did it on that cross. I want you to put your confidence in Jesus Christ. And if you do, if you can put your weight on that, if you can go to sleep in that hammock, then you are in Christ. You are wrapped in his righteous work. The garment of salvation is what it's called in Isaiah 61. And if you are in Christ, you have access to everything we talked about today. You cannot love with that bewildering love in your own drummed up version. You need his version flowing into you. So many of us are like, God, I, I need you to teach me how to love like you. So you watch him. It's like wa- watching Michael Jordan fly you know, from the free throw line, you know, do a couple flips. and then, pff, through. He doesn't do that. But that's the way it feels as a young kid or a basketball player. Watch like, whoa, how did he do that? And then you go out, jump from the free throw line, you know, land halfway on your face. It doesn't mean you don't mean well. It just means you're not Michael Jordan. It doesn't mean you don't mean well, but you're not Jesus Christ. And you can't just jump from mid-court and do the twirls and and slam it down. Bewildering. I mean, you you were impressed with Michael Jordan. Wait till you see Jesus play Christianity. Never has this world beheld something except in and through those of us that are willing to say, I can't do it, but I know you want to do it in me. Take this life and let it be consecrated unto thee. Fill me. And the illustration we give at Ellerslie is the hand in the glove. We're merely the glove. Gloves can't do much by themselves. But that hand sure can. Let's let God enter in. Let's let him love through us. Let's let him show this world who he is and through his church.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Lutie, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.